All right, so Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Questions are up on the screen. Take, take note of those as, uh, as we will respond uh, together in, in, just a, in just a little while. But I want to jump right in uh, and, and have us just uh, start reading the passage. But, but just before that, I want to, I want to set the, the context uh, for us once again so that we understand where we are in, in, the, in the text. And so uh, Luke chapter 2 started out for us of, of the, the birth narrative, the story of Jesus when he was, when he was born. And we're, we're pretty familiar with that passage. Last week we covered um, the, the passage where Jesus and his, and his family... They, they, they go to the temple just after he is born, about a month later, for his dedication and Mary's purification. And, and they encounter Simeon, and they encounter uh, Anna. And so that's, that's there. Um, and as our passage will start out this morning, you'll notice that it says they went straight from Jerusalem to back to Nazareth. And we can insert into there, not into Luke necessarily, but we can insert by knowing what we know from some of the other Gospels, particularly Matthew, that there were some other events that took place before they went back to, uh, before they went back to Jerusalem, uh, which are back to Nazareth, which is, includes uh, the visit of the, the wise men, right? The visit of the, uh, of the wise men, the, the flight to Egypt, the time that they spent in, in, in Egypt as, as they, the wise men come. And, of course, Herod, Herod knows what's going on, uh, that the wise men do not return. And so Herod sets his, his, his soldiers to go into the area and, and kill all the children to and under. Um, uh, uh, just uh, something the world has always tried to do to Christianity and to the gospel is kill it. Um, and we see that through there. And then the God in his, his mercy tells tells Joseph in a, in a dream, speaks to him in dreams, says, take your family, leave now, go to Egypt, seek, seek refuge uh, there in, in Egypt. And so the children are, are killed. And then eventually when Herod dies, um, that's when Joseph is told again in a dream to go to Nazareth. And this is where we go back to Nazareth, which is what we see here in our, in our passage where it starts out this morning in verse 39. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and look with me to verse 39. And we are going to read it together Uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in a group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for them among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And when he said, and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that, that he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to, his, to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Amen. So as we've read this passage this morning, I hope that you would take note that in verses 40 and verse 52, there's, a, there's bookends. You guys know what bookends? People even know what bookends are anymore? Right? You have books on a shelf, and if you don't want them to fall over, you put like something heavy, and those are called bookends. And sometimes it's, it's ornamental or something like that. It's holding the books together. And, and we have these bookends in verses 40 and verse 52, where it gives us a, uh, a, an insight to, to what is happening. So verse, 30, uh, verse 40 gives us kind of an insight of what 12 years of, of Jesus' life looked like, and afterwards is going to be the next 18 years of Jesus' life. So one of the things that it lets us in on is it shows us that, that Jesus grew up, right? Jesus grew up. He got older. And, and my, my dad used to say to people that when they would see us, they would, people would say, man, your boys are getting so big. And my dad's return statement was always, well, that's what, would happen. That's what happens when you feed them. Because that's what he felt was the food bill of feeding five boys. Um, and, and that's what happened. You feed Jesus, he grows, right? Just like any other normal human being. So once again, we see, once again, the, the incarnation in Christ, that he grew as a man to a, or a human, as a boy, went through puberty, did all of that stuff just like every single one of us, just in the first century. And as we noted a couple weeks ago, he did all of that sinless. He did all of that sinless. He, was, he grew up just like us, except in first day, our first century Israel, but he grew up uh, uh, sinless. But something else comes out in, in these passages that gives us insight to the, to the growth of Jesus, that it wasn't just a physical growth as Jesus was growing, but also he, he grew in, the fa- in favor with God. Now this seems like an odd passage. How, how are we to take Jesus growing in the favor of God. I mean, he is the Son of God. How can, how can the perfect Son of God please the Father more? Well, if you were able to be a part of our, our discussion on Wednesday nights with uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he told us, through video, he didn't actually show up, and through video, he told us what that passage means. And he told us that what that passage means is as Jesus grew up in the favor of God, it meant that the, the Holy Spirit of, of God was upon him in such a way that he was growing in, in wisdom and discernment. And he grew up in the favor of God, and, and the Holy Spirit was walking with him in such a way that he was walking in step with him, empowering him and leading him to fulfill and to continue to grow in the favor of God. In fact, this, this, the, the Greek word used here in Luke chapter 2 for favor is the exact same word that we see uh, translated and interpreted several other places for grace. 
it's correctly interpreted here. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's actually, I, I think, con context really shows us here that favor is the right interpretation. But the same word, charis, is, is used right here to show that the favor of God was upon his son. And so what I want to I show you this morning in this passage and between these, these bookends of this passage, I simply want to show you that as Jesus grew up in the favor of God, there's this parallel that by grace, believers in Christ, through the righteousness of Christ, will grow up also in the favor of God, the grace of God. That's just kind of boil it down to one simple statement. That's where we were, that's where we were going to go uh, this morning. So let's, let's also set the, the immediate stage of what's happening in the particular story in verses 41 and, and, and 51. So in, in 41 and 42, we see how this, the, the family tradition to, to go up every year to, to celebrate the feast of the Passover in, in Jerusalem. They would travel there and they would spend the whole week there in Jerusalem. And as they traveled, they would go with a, with a group to observe the Passover. In this particular year, in this particular instance, we now see Jesus, who is 12 years old. And this is a significant age for us to, to, to take note here. And the significance of this age is because Jesus was one year away from, from being 13. Now, of course, like, what is that supposed to mean? Well, in the Old Testament... It would tell us traditionally that at the age of 13 is when a young Jewish boy will become a son of the commandment. He would become a part of the covenant. He would become a full member of the synagogue at the age of 13. And, and, and Jewish tradition would suggest that fathers should take their 12-year-old sons with them, at least by 12, to the temple so that they can start understanding and seeing what religious life of Israel is all about. And take them to the heart of it. Take them to the, the temple. And so that's what Jesus was doing. That's what Joseph was doing in taking his son to celebrate the Passover. And age 12 is such a good, it's such a big age for us to understand before he takes on this identity now being a part as a son of the commandment, uh, part of the, the synagogue of, of Israel. And so as much as it would be great just to kind of unpack that, that first Passover feast and compare it to Jesus' last Passover feast, it would, it would be amazing to do. But the thrust of our passage takes us to another story within the story. And it tells us what happens directly after the week of Passover. So Jesus is with his family in, in Jerusalem for the whole week. The Passover's over. Time to get up. The whole town is, is, is leaving. So thousands of hundreds of thousands of people are, are leaving Israel. And the big group of people that are, that are going out of the town and then splitting off to Nazareth. And Jesus' family is, is part of that, that group that splits off and goes uh, to, back to Nazareth and, and most of the time the, the ladies would kind of be in the front together and Jesus would be sometimes with the women because the children but Jesus was kind of in that in between so he might have been back with Joseph and so Joseph's thinking that Jesus is probably with his mama and his mama's thinking that, that Jesus is with his daddy and, and guess where Jesus is, is not? With neither. He's with, he's with neither. Jesus stays behind. 
Now, this is the, a scenario that if, if, if you're a parent and you got kids and, and or if you've had kids and, and you've known when they're little, like my kids, you see them run amok. Like if you take them to places that they can run amok and they can get lost pretty easily. And for us, we're always counting off, you know, one, two, three, four. Who are we missing? Where's Kate? Where's Lydia? Lydia's still in the bathroom. Go grab her. You know, stuff like that. And, and the poor dog, I mean, he just kind of gets abandoned, right? And before we know it, he's been outside for 15 minutes, and we didn't even know it. Um, but this is like the, our, a parent's worst nightmare, right? They get, they get a whole day down the road, and they realize, where's our boy? I thought he was with you. Mary, he was supposed to be with you, right? When I was younger, again, you guys are going to really get to know me, because I'm going to give you a bunch of illustrations that correspond to me, and you're going to know a whole lot more than you probably ever wanted to. But when I was younger, around 13, 14 years old, my family went to a, uh, to a baseball game, which we would often do. We loved going to ball games. We were real close to spring training fields, and, and we had a group of family friends that we would go. And, and on this particular occasion, it was with a couple families, and there was around 20 of us that went to this, uh, went to this ball game. And, and at the end of the game, we, we decided, well, let's, let's let the night continue, right? Let's go have some more fun, and let's go get some pizza. So so everybody was on the way out of the baseball stadium, out of the ballpark, with all the other throngs of crowds of people heading to their cars. And, of course, everybody's trying to get to their car first so you can get out, right? You don't want to be stuck in the line in the traffic uh, uh, to get out. So, so we get to our cars. We head to the pizza place, probably about 10, 15 minutes away. And, and we get in there, and we're all sitting down. You know, the kids are at their table, and the parents are at their table. And, and the parents are trying to figure out, what do you all want? And we don't know what, they, what we want, but they're ordering for us. And it's kind of a catastrophe, but, you know, a beautiful catastrophe when you get a bunch of families together with a bunch of kids. And, and before we know it, right, one of the families who has two kids realized that they only had one kid at that moment. Right? And they, what, they, what they realized when we were ordering, it was kind of like Home Alone, but Home Alone at the baseball field. Um, we realized that their seven-year-old or eight-year-old daughter was left back at, uh, the, uh, back at the stadium. Now, this was before cell phones, right? This was before, I mean, not really. Actually, I'm not that old. There were cell phones, <laughs> but they were attached to cars, right? They were, they were still attached to cars, but then you didn't really know who to call because who else had a cell phone, right? So, so they, they jump in their car, and they book it back to the stadium, and, and and, and thankfully, uh, Elizabeth had enough sense about her to, to go to a police officer, and, and the police officer helped her. Um, and, and, and they didn't get arrested, like the parents didn't get arrested for child endangerment like they would now, and abuse, and all kinds of crazy stuff that, that, um, uh, that happens, happens now. So thankfully, she was. And she wasn't too emotionally scarred for too long. She started talking after about two years. So she, she, she kind of got back to normal. They got back. They got back just in time for the pizza. And really, it turned out to be not that big of a deal. But it's like the exact same scenario. Like, I thought he was with you. I thought she was with you. No, they were riding. I thought they were riding with them. And everyone's like, oh, you better go get Elizabeth. Right? Um, and this is the exact same scenario that happened when Mary and Joseph were traveling from Jerusalem back to uh, uh, Nazareth. And, and so when they, they, they realize that they have to travel another whole day. So I'm, the story I told you was like 30 minutes, right? And, 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 and now they, they have to go a whole day's journey back to uh, Jerusalem. So now that's two days their son is missing. Their 12-year-old boy is, is missing. They have no clue where he is. And then it took a whole another day to find Jesus and the city. And, of course, we know where Jesus was. 
what, what a horrible three days that must have been. The anguish, the pain, the frustration. You know, you, you eventually, as parents, you kind of get done blaming each other, and then you just start worrying about your kid. And here was Jesus, they find him. I mean, it, isn't that generally how it is if, if you, when you lose a child or you kind of mis, misplace, not misplace them, but you kind of lose eyes on them for a second, and then you just kind of see them in like the most obvious spot. And I think that's what they realized when they came. When they saw Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus sitting among the teachers, he was listening to them, he was asking them questions. And when they found Jesus, they were astonished, as it says. I think Mary has been astonished and stunned for a while now. And they find him there, and he's, he's, he's listening. He's in the temple. Somebody must have been taking care of him, but he was there. And even those around him, the, the teachers, and so and, and traditionally a lot of those after the feast, a lot of the teachers would stay around for a few more days in Israel, and they would, they would sit there and they would teach, and they would talk back and forth and with the students and disciples, and that's what Jesus was doing. And all those were there. Verse 47 says that they, were, that they were amazed at his understanding and all of his answers. They were struck. They were struck in, in awe of, of Jesus' comprehension and Jesus' exchange of, of question and, and answers. So, so let's just kind of get this through, through, through our minds here. Remember, Jesus is, is not Superman here. Right? Jesus didn't fly. Jesus didn't have all the... the he wasn't practicing omniscience here. He wasn't, he wasn't practicing his omniscience here. Jesus was, yes, he was intelligent. He might have been a, a genius. He might have been smart, absolutely, but they were amazed and stunned by this 12-year-old boy who was listening and asking questions in, this, in the, the, Greek, the ancient Greek way of, of teaching, student and teacher. They would go back and forth asking questions to one another and answering questions. We wonder, just out of a statement, we wonder why Jesus answers back so many questions to the, to the Pharisees when they ask him questions. He says, well, let me ask you a question. So they were astonished. And I think also in their astonishment, Mary and Joseph, when they see them, I think they were also astonished, astonished in the sense where, where, where Jesus was just kind of indifferent. Like they get there and, 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 and Jesus doesn't be, is not coming up as like what our children would do if they've been missing and they know they've been missing. They come running up to you. Mom, I missed you so much. I can't believe you left me. God, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus was just like, oh, hey. And they're, just like any parent would be, just frustrated. I mean, look at her statement. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress as you can imagine. I guess the same kind of questions that we would ask as parents in our moments of, of frustration, right? It's the, it's the kind of questions we ask our kids. They're obvious answers, right? We know what the obvious answer is, but we just want them to acknowledge us that, yes, we are frustrated and you're at fault. And that's what we have here, and Mary asking the question, Mary's concerned. She reprimands her son in front of the temple. But, but the way that Jesus answers in verse 49, which is our first, the first earliest recorded words that we have of, of Jesus here in verse 49, has huge, great theological importance and implications for us. 
And it isn't amazing, once again, that we, we see Jesus here answering his mother's question with questions. Look what he says there. Verse 49 says, Why were you looking for me? Right? Meaning, you should know where I was. I'm not missing. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, of course, here, Jesus is not speaking about Joseph because that's not Joseph's house. He's speaking about God, his father, not his earthly father. And he's not being ugly toward his adopted dad, but he was reminding Mary, his true father, that his true father is his father in heaven, his father whom has sent him. You see, Jesus is not being disobedient to his parents. What he's actually is he's being obedient to his father. And we're going to talk about that more in a moment. So in this interaction between this 12-year-old and and his parents, Mary and and, and Joseph, I think they they come to the grips here. This is one of the reasons why I think in verse 51 where Mary says she treasured these things in her heart. Because I think here she, she kind of comes to grips to the, to the reality that the normal mother-son relationship with her 12-year-old boy was not going to be this normal mother-son relationship because Jesus was not an ordinary, normal boy. Jesus was God's son. And Jesus was going to have to be obedient to his father. And so as Mary is trying to figure these things out, as Joseph's trying to figure these things out, and they're wrestling with the idea what this means for for their family, isn't that just about the same kind of experience that we have when we come to Jesus? That the, the normality of our life totally shifts. That our whole life then begins to be about accommodating Christ and not our own fleshly desires of what we think is normal and good and right for our lives. We see Mary get rearranged in her life. And when we uh, embrace Jesus as our Savior, everything changes. Our, all of our relationships, our ambitions, our loves, our attitudes toward, toward others, the way we serve, the way we are obedient, He rearranges and He reconfigures everything. And that's why in Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus says, He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my own. He cannot be my disciple. Have you ever had a guest in your home? You ever had someone come stay at your house and stay there for maybe a couple days or a, or a week? And it's, you know, a joy, right? Let's, let's treat this as a joy. It's not like a stinky fish, the stinky fish saying, you know. It's a joy to have someone in our home. And what do we do? We, we accommodate them. Our, our, our schedules will change around, around what they want to do in Statesboro or what they want to do in Savannah or whatever they want to do in this area. The what we eat will accommodate what they eat. So if I come to your house, you're going to have Miracle Whip in your refrigerator. Right? If I come over, you're going to have, you know, we're not going to eat shrimp or seafood, right? We're going to eat steak, right? We're going to accommodate our guests. We're going to accommodate our, our friends because we love them and we want them to be a part. And everything shifts. And as we meet Jesus and know Jesus, he impacts us in such a way, even this 12-year-old boy doing that, seeing that shift in their whole family life, it changes us. We need to accommodate him. That if he is the Son of God, as Mary is realizing, and we see that as the Spirit reveals that to us, then the accommodation of Christ, it changes everything. And it's not a burden, it becomes a delight. 
So in this morning, that delight that I want to show you in how Christ rearranges our lives in a most magnificent, beautiful way. I want to show you in this passage this morning and how Jesus, as he was empowered and walked with the Holy Spirit, right, favored with God, I want to show you three ways in how it parallels with us. Those three ways are, just to, just to go ahead and list them out, because I know that's one of the answers to your question, is we will see how Jesus delighted in his identity, delighted in his identity. He delighted in his Father's word. And he delighted in his obedience. I almost changed this morning identity, this morning that first one, delighted in his identity, but delighted in his sonship. I think that would have sounded better. So if you want to do that, you can. First one, he delighted in his identity. In verse 49, Jesus answered his mother in the temple where he stood. Don't you know that I must be in my father's house? In doing so, when he said these things, he was proclaiming, even here at 12 years old, that God, that God was his father. That God is his, is his Father, and that he stood in a unique relationship to God. Unlike any other that ever had, he stands in a unique relationship as God, as his Father. In fact, the phrase used by Jesus here, my Father, is like no other. It's, it's, it's like no other. We, we, we don't see that come at all in the Old Testament. As a 12-year-old, Jesus understands that he has a unique relationship with God, his Father, one that is far deeper and far more profound than anyone has ever seen or known before. And this is so important for us to understand because of the closeness and the confidence that Jesus had in his Father throughout his life that would eventually lead him to his death on the cross. Eighteen years later, as Jesus began his public ministry, his awareness of God as his, as his Father would be a trademark of his ministry. In his boldness, in his courage, in his humility, in his faithfulness, in his endurance, in his perseverance, joy, in his teaching, was all surrounded by his confidence in his identity as God's Son. Let me, let me just kind of show you how radical this is how radical it is for Jesus to say something like this. In fact, it's pretty much what led to his death. Out of the whole Old Testament, 39 books, only 14 times did those in the Old Testament speak as God, as Father. 14 times. And every time that they do, it's always in an impersonal way. It's never my Father. Never. I mean, sometimes Abraham would say, would, would, uh, people would say that Abraham, God, was his father, but he never spoke to him as a, in a unique, personal, I am, the, I am the son of God. But when Jesus shows up, he says, my father. In every one of his prayers, when Jesus prayed, he prayed, my father. He prayed like no one else. In the Gospels, over 60 times does he say, Father, as we would say, as my kids say to me, as I say to my dad, my dad, my father. As we saw on Wednesday in Romans 8, Daddy, 
Abba, Father. And we catch a glimpse into into Jesus' understanding of, of, of who he really is. And we need to recognize that he knew who he was because we need to under, understand that as he knew who he was, he also understood what he was going to do. He understand his obligation to his Father's will. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is my food. That is what I eat. That is the bread by which satisfies me, is to do the will of the one who sent me, my Father. His life, his joy, his satisfaction, his desire is to do the will of his Father, and Jesus delightfully submitted himself to his Father's will every time. Remember when Jesus prayed in the garden, if it be your will to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's the bottom of the like this, this passage here, I think, shows us the bottom of the rung of the ladder. Where that right there, that prayer in Gethsemane, was the top of the ladder. And he grew. And it became more and more obedient to the Father as he realized who his Father was and who he was. So this, is a, this profound awareness of his sonship and his relationship to his Father has deep implications for us. And these implications run throughout the New Testament. I mean, check out the shift in the New Testament where now it speaks to as us that now God is our Father. Now in a very personal way that we can have a deep, intimate relationship now with God, our Father. God, my Father, just as Jesus spoke to, I must be about my Father's will and about my, my Father's plan. We speak the same way in the very personal way that we can be about our Father's will and our Father's plan because he is our Father. When Jesus taught us to pray in Luke 11, he taught us to pray by saying what? Our Father. That's, that's mind-blowing that, that we can now speak to God in such personal ways because now, through Christ, God has adopted his elect and now we are called his sons. And he has given us his spirit back to Romans 8. He has given us his spirit. So now his spirit bears witness with with our spirits that we are sons. That we are adopted. That he is our father. In a much deeper and more, uh, uh, much more deeper and much more personal way than any father-son relationship on earth. And this is now our identity. If you are in Christ, this is now our identity, that God is our Father. And this reality gives us boldness and strength and joy and steadfastness and humility. It makes me think about our our union with Christ, that I am His and He is with me. Because God is our Father. Brothers and sisters, meditate on that. Write that down. I'm going to meditate on this tomorrow for 10 minutes that God is my Father and just write out five ways. Write out five ways how that will, will, will make a massive impact on your day. If, if God is my Father, then I am secure with Him. He will not abandon me. 
He's not angry at me. He's not going to pour his wrath out on me because it's been satisfied in his son. Now, I am his son. That's just one. That's a freebie. If you want to do six, you can. But do that. Think about what that means. So first we see Jesus is delighting in his sonship or delighting in his identity. Secondly, we see Jesus delighting in his father's word. Looking back a little bit further up in verse 46, it says that they found Jesus sitting in the temple among the teachers, and he was listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. Well, what were they talking about? What were they doing in those, in those three days in the temple as they were discussing? Well, they weren't talking about sports. They weren't talking about politics. They were talking about the law. They were talking about the, the, the Old Testament. They were talking about God. And this is the place where Jesus stayed behind. This is the place where he wanted to be. This is the place where he wanted to be surrounded by. To be immersed in his Father's Word. So that he could grow in it. So that he could grow in it. Asking questions. Listening. Responding to questions. Whatever it was particular, specifically they were talking about, we don't know, but what was clear is that Jesus wanted to be about the Father's business, and that is the Father's word. Uh, C.D. Agin of his, his book, The Imitation of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, said that as Jesus was in the temple and interacting with the teachers, it shows us that he desired to understand Scripture. He is glad to be in the Father's house, learning more about his Father's purpose from his Father's word. So not only was Jesus confident in his identity, in the mission that God sent him as the Son of God, but he was confident in God's word. And we see how this this plays out throughout the ministry of, of, of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see how Jesus is confident in God's Word. He never questions it. He, he quotes it as God's Word. He quotes the Scripture as God's inspired, inerrant Word of His truthfulness. He believes it as God's Word, and He treats it as God's Word. He delights in God's Word. He grows in God's Word. Scripture was enough for Jesus. It was his God's word. And Jesus grew in it. Jesus quoted it. He quoted the Psalms all the time. He believed in its effectiveness and its power. He interpreted it for us. Praise God. Jesus grew up in the word of God And if Jesus was zealous to understand the will of God through the word of God, then we ought to share in that zeal as well. We ought to delight in it. Brothers and sisters, if we are to grow up, to mature, then we must have a growing delight in God's word. God's word that is written to us, that is for us, so that we can know him. It's God's word for us so that we can know him. What other sources can you go to? What other sources of authority are out there? Anybody who claims any source of authority out of the written word of God that claims to know God is to be anathema. 
is a heretic. We go to the source. And one of the biggest reasons is because of the evidence that Jesus goes to the Bible. Brothers, what a gift. Brothers and sisters, what a gift that has been preserved for us. So let's not neglect delighting in God's word. So as you meditate upon your identity of the sonship, that God is your father, and you write down your five things, search the word of God. Put some scriptures to those meditations. Put some text next to each one of those and how that all works out. Use this passage. Use, use others. Go to, go to Romans 8. There's a cheat sheet. Go to Romans 8. The third way, so the first is Jesus delighted in his sonship or his identity. And the second is Jesus delighted in God's word. And number three, we see how Jesus was delighting in obedience. Jesus was delighting in obedience. Earlier this week, I was talking to someone about my, my sermon outline, and I got to the third point. I was, I was kind of explaining things, and, and, and his remark to me was, was how little he sees Christians' obedience. That was his first remark. He said, man, how, how often we see Christians who are just not obedient, much less Christians who delight in obedience. And the reason why we don't delight in obedience, I think it works itself back up in delighting in our sonship and our identity as, as sons and that God is our Father. And it trickles down because we know the Word of God and when we know the Word of God, then we know how to be obedient and we will delight in that obedience. And yet we see here in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 2 and throughout the Gospels that Jesus delighted in being obedient. He was joyful in his obedience. Jesus submitted to his Father. We see that here. We see how Jesus was submitting to his Father and staying behind the temple to learn and study the words of his Father. And Jesus is such a, is such a wonderful example to us on perfect submission and obedience. But we also need to take note here that Jesus didn't use his relationship with the Father, though, as an excuse to rebel against his earthly parents. He didn't use it as an excuse to rebel. And if there was anybody who could use that, kind of pull that card out, it was Jesus, right? I mean, he could whip that out and say, uh, I'm going to pull the Son of God card out here. I don't have to be, I'm going to stay here a few more days. I'll meet you back. I'll catch a taxi back or whatever. Taxi camel. Got Bill. Yes. He didn't use that excuse, but instead he was submissive. I mean, look at verse 51. So Jesus answers the question, answers his mother's rhetorical question seemingly because the answer should have been yes. And he answers back with questions. And then this is what it says, what happens immediately in verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. He was submissive to them. No wonder Mary treasured. No wonder Mary treasured these things in, in, in her heart. But as Jesus gently reminded her earlier that Joseph was not his father, but, G, but God was, it wasn't to excuse or undermine their authority. But Jesus then submits to his authorities, his parents, those whom God has placed over him. 
You see, if, if Jesus had not been obedient to his, to, his, to his parents and submitted to the authorities that God has placed on him and over him, then how is Jesus going to be obedient to his Father? But Jesus, as 1 Peter 1, 18-19 tells us, that Jesus was perfectly holy so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, obedient to the point of death on a cross. So we must understand that as Jesus submitted to, the author- to his authorities, we must, we must also stand. We must stand against our culture and submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. Right? These, are, these respect and submission are not virtues that describe our society. I mean, that's just gone. In fact, in fact, the suspicion of, of authority looms over in, in every direction, and there's even growing movements of people that just want to tear everything down. And, and granted, sometimes the mistrust that is the by, by authorities, whether it be politicians, police, parents, teachers, churches, etc., whatever it may be, granted, that mistrust is well-earned. Granted, it's well-earned because, sadly, we live in a fallen world with fallen authority. Authority that is abused and is used for selfish, sinful purposes. But yet then, on the other side, there's the pride in our hearts that already incline us to believe that we generally know better than those whom God has placed over us. But remember, the authorities that Jesus submitted to, in this case it was his parents, who were no less fallen and fallible than anyone else. Anyone else in our day. But if Jesus understood and he submitted to the authorities that God placed over them, over him, who were limited and who were also fallible in the same way, we are to submit as if we were submitting to the Father. We should have the same humility to trust in our Father. That's what I said, rebelling against culture. Now, submit. Submit to your authorities and you're going to be the rebel. It's no longer rebellion to not submit. Be the rebel and submit, as Christ did. So we must live, in such, live and speak in such a way that while often authority is abused and corrupted in this fallen world, our hope is not there. But fundamentally, authority has been given and placed over our life as a gift by God for our good. So, so now all of this sounds really good. And we see how Jesus submitted perfectly. And Jesus, by far, is the best example of, of, of humanity. He's the perfect example of, of, humi- of, of all of humanity. He was the perfect human being. But if Jesus is just our good example, then we still have a problem. Because you and I, we're, we're, we're not like Jesus. We're, we're not like Jesus. We may have grown up in the likeness of humanity like Christ has, but I kept on saying that same caveat, that, that Jesus was sinless and we are not. Even if you wanted to, and you set yourself about to change your whole entire life, to live every single way according to the way Jesus taught and the way Jesus lived, you still would fail. 
we still would fail. We are incapable in ourselves to be obedient, even as great as an example Jesus was, much less delighting in it. We do not always delight in doing the will of our Heavenly Father, even now, even as regenerate. We still don't delight in it all the time, do we? In fact, sometimes, Lord help us, but sometimes we even think about and even long to be free from God's will. And we have thoughts in our imagination of, of how it might be a little, we might be a little bit more happier if we had our own way. And I think Christians sometimes can be the worst offenders when it comes to disrespecting God's given authority. I've, I've heard the argument before, some of you might as well, that, well, I, I can do this because, because I, can, I can do this and I can live in open rebellion against the Word of God, even though it says that because we are under grace and no longer under law. I've heard that before. I've heard that before. As, as if the cross was the free pass to not live in holiness and righteousness. And we get to thinking to ourselves, and this is a trend of culture, a trend of, I think, fake and false Christianity, that God wants me to be happy no matter what it feels like, or no matter how I feel, no matter what the Bible says. My happiness trumps everything. I'll give you a few other examples. Sometimes we like to say that, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to obey my church leaders as Hebrews 13, 17 tells me to do, as long as they don't instruct me or tell me to do anything that I don't really want to do or believe. We've seen that attitude. Another is, I'll, I'll respect those who are in government, like Romans 13.1 tells me to do, but so long as it's only those who I voted for, and, and, and it's the policies that I agree with. But if not, rage against the machine. Stick it to the man. Or go back to the church. I'll, I'll submit to everyone in the church and to one another as Ephesians 5.21 says, as long as I don't have to be challenged myself. Or if it causes me to have to humble myself in front of others, then no. Not to mention, I mean, we, we could talk, we could just kind of go over and over. I mean, all the other areas of, of submission. So yes, Jesus is a, is a glorious example to us. But if that's all we see Jesus as, is just a good example to us, then you're condemned. That's all his example does, is it condemns us. Because it demonstrates to us over and over that Jesus is the person that I never could be. It exposes in us how terribly we have failed over and over to keep God's law. We see his perfect example of, of righteousness, and it just obliterates my righteousness. And it shows me I had none in the first place. So then, if we, if we understand then, so then we understand that we need a righteousness and obedience that does not come from me, but that comes outside of me. That comes from outside. And this is why this passage is so important to us, because here, in Jesus' obedience to God, his Father, and to his parents, Mary and Joseph, it distinctly shows us the trajectory of Jesus' perfect obedience in his holiness, in his righteousness. And in his obedience, and in his righteousness, and through his holiness, it's now a righteousness that we can take on ourselves. Romans 5, verse 19 
actually, I like what we say there, that we can now possess. It's imputed, like we like to say. It's now imputed to us. It's given to us. As paupers in need. Verses, uh, Romans 5, 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so as by one man's obedience, the many will become righteous. Wow. Amazing. And this is the trajectory our passage shows us this morning. And on our passage already looms for us the shadow of the cross, doesn't it? Don't we start to see the shadow of the cross rise even over this 12-year-old boy? That even in our short story, we see how a family lost their kid in Jerusalem and Jesus is kind of being met, reprimanded by a mom who's scared and is in fear. That we see how Jesus delighted in his father delight in his identity, his commitment to his, to his father's word, and this joyful obedience that would lead him, lead him freely to give his life up for his own. The road of the cross begins here. Just as Jesus said, I am to be about my father's business. Carpentry will become a means to an end. But I am to be about my father's business. Just as we read earlier in Luke 22, as he, as he submitted himself to, the, to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is the only way, this is only the only way that we can be forgiven. And, and this forgiveness can be available to rebellious, unsubmissive, disrespectful people like us, like me. Jesus submitted to his Father's will. And the Father's will was that he should die for all the ways that his people have sinned against him. Against all of our distrust, all of our rebellion, all of our disobedience, our lust, our lies, our hates, our unforgiveness, our anger, our uh, adultery, our jealousy, our sinful independence, and anything else that we can put there. We all share in the same guilt. But if you can see Jesus, let me restart that. You cannot see Jesus as your example until you see Jesus as your Savior first. You, you can't. You, you cannot pull, put the cart before the horse. You put the cart before the horse, what's going to happen? The horse is going to laugh at you. You're going to get tired. You're going to get exhausted. You're going to fail. You're going to fall away. But when Christ is our Savior, then we get to rest in the fact that it's a righteousness and it's obedience that has been given to us freely by God's grace for us to live in. It's a, new, it's a favor that's been placed upon us that we do not have to earn, that we do not have to gain. He's not a, he's not a, a horrible dad that just is, is only happy with his kids when we're good. He's happy with us because Jesus was perfect. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that, in that great sonship, that great grace. Because when Christ is our Savior, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to death. But we're now slaves to Christ. And that is a slavery that is freedom. Freedom and true liberty. So I started off asking a question at the beginning of my sermon. How can Jesus grow up in the favor of God? And we talked about that. We've seen how Jesus delighted in his identity, delighted in the word of God, he delighted in obedience. 
And he continued to grow. Like verse 52, you can see where it bookends there. He continued to grow and increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He was growing in all those areas, empowered and walking by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has also given us the Holy Spirit as well so that we could be walking and growing in holiness and righteousness as well, that we can start to look more and more like our Savior. He was fulfilling the mission of God on our behalf. It was not just our example. He was our Savior. So what about us? What about you? Are you growing up in the favor of God? And the simple answer to that question is, is we grow up in the favor of God, not by our own works. But we grow up in the favor of God by trusting, by faith. By faith in, the righteous, in a righteousness that is outside of ourselves, but in Christ alone. We grow through grace, enabled to, to delight in our new identity. I've been talking about this all morning. To delight in our identity as adopted sons of God to delight in, his, in God's word now. Been adopted to delight in, his, in obedience, that obedience is no longer a burden, but it is a delight to us. And that through Christ, we are growing up in the favor of God, like Jesus, walking and being empowered by the Holy Spirit through the power of his gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the riches of your mercy and grace that you have lavished upon your people. And that lavishment has come in the form of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have given to be our Savior so that we could believe and trust in a righteousness and an obedience that is unlike our own. And so I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand these things more and more as we take these on as our identity more and more. We would take on our identity in, our, in the sonship and we would delight more in your word. And, oh, Father, we would delight in being obedient to our Heavenly Father. Help us now to have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we respond and soon later take of the Lord's Supper together as your people, as your body. In Jesus' name, amen.